The Take on Duchenne podcast is dedicated to educating and raising awareness of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or DMD, a rare and progressive genetic disease affecting muscle function. We bring scientific leaders in the field of DMD together to discuss and share knowledge, insights, and perspectives to support the continuous education and awareness of this disease. This series is brought to you by PTC Therapeutics, a global biopharmaceutical company focused on improving patient lives who are affected by rare diseases like DMD through innovative therapies, earlier diagnosis, and improved standard of care. The information presented in this podcast is intended to be general in nature and is not medical advice. This should not replace or substitute speaking with a healthcare professional. If you are a patient or caregiver, consult your care team with any questions or concerns regarding medical conditions. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. In a recent Take on Duchenne North America podcast episode, we had the opportunity to spotlight three exceptional women navigating the complex world of Duchenne. Throughout the course of the next couple of months, we have the privilege of sharing additional bonus content from my discussions with Dr. Linda Kripe, Elizabeth Floyd, and Dr. Ellen Welch. Today, you'll hear more from Dr. Kripe, a pediatric cardiologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital who has been contributing to her field for around 20 years with a passion for cardiomyopathy associated with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Kripe. What inspires your passion with regards to cardiomyopathy and in particular within DMD? You know, I have over the years realized that this is a really tough disease to tackle. And the individuals who have been affected by this disease have really touched my heart and their families um, have welcomed me into their lives. And, And so... I think that connection with the patients and the families really drives my desire to um, help participate in any way that I can in in changing the outcome for families with Duchenne. That's great. Thank you. Could you provide an overview of your scientist journey? I'm a clinician at, at heart, and I see my role in this journey as being maybe a guide. Um, I think of it in terms of looking for opportunities to connect bench scientists to the clinical realm. And I think it's when we make those connections and we make those individuals see each other's silos in a more transparent way that we can really implement transformational change in the disease. So I have a background in the past in bench science, so I I know just enough to be a little dangerous, but I think that allows me to recognize opportunities where the clinician and and the bench scientists can hold hands and try to make change happen. And how have those initial learnings created changes today? You know, I think we've come an enormous distance, uh, specifically with regards to the cardiomyopathy associated with this disease. Initially, it was thought that people who had Duchenne weren't impacted by their disease from a heart standpoint until their late teens or early 20s. And now, as a result of advanced imaging and uh, increased awareness, we've been able to change that. We now know that you are born with this disease and and it's in the heart. And uh, we can see EKG changes as early as the newborn. We're seeing cardiac MRI changes in early childhood in in a significant percentage of the children. So I, I think that we have come an enormous distance. What I've been impressed by is how slow change occurs. I, you know, I was maybe naive 20 years ago thinking that, oh, all you have to do is just 
sort of look and push a couple buttons and and we're going to be better. But what I've realized is that change is is tough and um, we just have to be chipping at the glacier every day. Are there some unique challenges that present as a result of the change and of the improvements over the last 20 years? There's an enormous amount of challenges in this disease. But for me, the challenges have been to increase awareness that the heart is a muscle too. I think there's a lot of historical precedent for people to think that this disease is a skeletal muscle disease, which it is. And I don't want to discount that. But it's also a cardiomyopathy. And ultimately, the cardiomyopathy is going to impact the morbidity and mortality in this disease significantly. And I think as we embark on clinical trials and as we embark on new therapies, we have to not only think about how are these therapies going to impact skeletal muscle function, but how is it going to impact cardiac function? And we have to put those endpoints and those imaging modalities into these clinical trials. And speaking of clinical trials, could you talk about research focused on females in Duchenne, uh, including female carriers? What is known? Yeah, I mean, I think That's an area where there's a lot of white snow that we still need to step on and make some tracks. You know, there is a a subset of people who are affected by Duchenne muscular dystrophy who are girls or women. They are known as manifesting carriers, and they've been sort of a forgotten group of people not really included in clinical trials historically and oftentimes under-recognized and and misdiagnosed and not given the diagnosis of Duchenne, which would allow appropriate treatments. Uh, Not only that, we've learned a lot about the fact that maternal carriers who are even not manifesting can manifest the cardiomyopathy associated with uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. How does someone know that they are a carrier? If you want to find out if you're a carrier, then you need to contact your neuromuscular specialist and they can perform the appropriate diagnostic tests, which usually involve genetic testing to um, establish whether you're a carrier. You know, I think it's tough because uh, there's an emotional journey that occurs with regards to finding out whether you're a carrier or not. However, as we learn more about how the disease impacts carriers, I think it becomes more essential that the females get brave and, and take those steps and find out that information because that's the way they can protect their health. And by protecting their health, then they're going to be able to more effectively take care of their sons. In your clinical practice, how do you care for carriers and what are the care considerations for carriers? Yeah, you know, I think we need to do a lot of work here and we're, we're making strides and, and we're trying to do that. In our clinical practice, it's tough because we're trying to develop what we call carrier clinics. And there is an effort also spearheaded by Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy uh, that I've been involved in to try to get a national network of carrier clinics. But it's hard. It's hard for a million different reasons that it would seem simple, but it's not simple. You have to engage providers. You have to engage institutions to commit those resources and convince them that it's an economically feasible direction that they should take. You know, the standards of care for carriers at the moment are ill-defined, mainly because we really have ill-defined the natural history. We really don't know when to start screening um, maternal carriers with regards to looking at the cardiomyopathy. You know, how young do we need to start looking? You know, there is a thought that young females, teenage females aren't affected, but really we haven't looked. So we really don't know. Do you find that there is reluctance to surveillance with regards to carriers? I don't think there's reluctance to surveillance. I think there's ignorance with regards to surveillance, which I think is different. I think that there's just this general feeling that carriers aren't involved. And I think that's very historical because 
historically, when we looked, we didn't look with the right microscope. We looked with tools that didn't allow us to see that the myocardium was involved. But now that we're able to look with cardiac MRI and we can see that the myocardium is impacted, then we know that the disease is there. But that information hasn't eked in and seeped into the body of medical literature yet. And as a result of that, we haven't been able to make that sort of standard practice amongst families. What are the benefits of cardiac MRI and late gelatinine enhancement? And is it as important for carriers as it is for young men with DMD? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. And, and the benefits are that it allows us to look in the myo at the myocardium in, in a way that we can't using cardiac ultrasound. It allows us to look at the disease earlier on in the disease process. Um, it allows us to see the development of myocardial fibrosis, and it allows us to see abnormalities of myocardial strain that tell us that the tsunami is coming. And as a result, when we know the disease is headed towards us, we can initiate treatment and therapy more aggressively and earlier. So I think it's, for me as a pediatric cardiologist, it's had a tremendous impact in the way I practice medicine and the way I practice treating families with Duchenne. And I think that goes along with the maternal carriers. You know, I, I think the tough thing for me is when we say to a, a young mother, you know, we just did a cardiac MRI and, and your myocardium is not normal and you do have myocardial fibrosis to say, what are we going to do about that? And I think that's where we need to do a lot of work. And, and in many regards, that's true with regards to the young men as well. You know, I don't think we have a lot of treatment options yet to impact the disease other than sort of your standard heart failure treatments. That's not to say that we shouldn't employ those things or that, you know, some of the techniques that we are truly employing now aren't slowing the disease process down, which I think we all hope that they are. But I think everybody wants the home run. Everybody wants the cure. Everybody wants to to get this disease out of their lives. And we haven't gotten there yet. Sure. And so that management is not specific to DMD. No, at the moment, all of the treatments that we have for treating the cardiomyopathy associated with this disease are sort of standard heart failure treatments that we use in treating heart failure in all of our cardiomyopathies that we see in our outpatient clinic. How common are arrhythmias in carrier moms? You know, I, I think that's a question that we really, truly don't know the answer to yet. Um, Andreas Barth at John Hopkins University has a Department of Defense grant where he's really doing a nice job of trying to collect that information. And so hopefully we'll have some of those answers in the near future. But I think that historically we thought that the arrhythmias were much more prevalent later in the disease process and much more significant and important. And my gut feeling is that their rhythm abnormalities are there, but they're reasonably well tolerated. So I think that the bottom line is we have a lot to learn still. They're clearly present, but probably not having as much of a clinical impact as we once thought. Would you recommend rhythm monitoring for carrier moms? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, I think carrier moms need to have rhythm monitoring, particularly in the same way that the boys do. You know, I, I'm less concerned about a carrier mom who has normal cardiac function with minimal fibrosis on her cardiac MRI. And I'm more concerned about a carrier mom who may have a uh, very depressed myocardial function and she would need to have more aggressive monitoring. Could you speak to the reliability of serum biomarkers with regards to cardiomyopathy? Yeah, I mean, I think 
that that is also an area where um, I wish we had better serum biomarkers. You know, we really just at the moment use traditional heart failure markers. Troponin I, which is a serum biomarker of myocardial injury, can be informative and will go up in what we've seen in periods of significant illness or times when there's severe chest pain. So I think that can be useful in the appropriate clinical situation. Uh, BNP, which is a traditional biomarker that we use to uh, monitor heart failure, I think can also be helpful, but it has its limitations. So I think traditional serum biomarkers in which we monitor heart failure are useful, but have some limitations. Of all the educational gaps that you've alluded to, which do you think demand uh, immediate attention? Which would you like to see focused on first? The educational gap, I think, is just the simple statement that mothers are at risk or mothers may be at risk if you're a carrier for myocardial disease as a result of your carrier status and that you owe it to yourself and to your family to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and getting appropriate cardiac care. Is that part of the reason why severity varies between carriers? I think it's likely to be one of the reasons. You know, I think there may be other reasons with regards to other modifying genes and other elements that are under investigation as to why some female carriers manifest the disease uh, more than others. And, and I think that's an area that needs to be explored. How can we better understand these modifying genes that contribute to cardiomyopathy, DMD? Yeah, I think it's actually a really important area of investigation. And there are bench scientists who are doing that right now. And I think that they need the support of the community with regards to funding and encouragement and opportunities to advance their research. You know, it's tough these days to get funding for research. And, and so I think continuing to support organizations and to support efforts to make that happen, I think is critical. You know, we sit in a clinic room and we say that your son has Duchenne and they say, well, how did this happen? And we look at them and we say, well, it's possible. It's likely that you passed this gene on to them, even though some of the mutations are novel. And, and, and then we just walk out of the room and, and we leave them sitting there with that thought. I mean, how horrific that is, right? I mean, I think we need to immediately make sure that those women are well cared for and that they're dealing with the grief associated with that. How common is myocardial fibrosis in maternal carriers? We recently um, conducted a study at Nationwide Children's Hospital where we looked at carrier moms. The study was funded by a large grant from Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy, and we are thankful to them for providing us with that funding. It was a study done by Mei Ling Ma and Dr. Khan Hoare. And we found that about 50% of the moms had uh, myocardial fibrosis on our imaging, which is impressive. And it was actually somewhat of a surprise that the myocardial involvement is as pervasive as, as it is in carrier mothers. When do you initiate cardiac therapy with regards to DMD boys, and how is that different from carrier moms? When do we initiate therapy in DMD boys is, is an interesting and tough question. I think we're, we're working through that. I think we want to start them on medications before they reach the age of 10. Obviously, if we see abnormalities on imaging earlier than that, we'll start them sooner. There's some controversy as to how soon the medication should be started, but early. Now, when to start 
medications and carrier moms, I think is a tougher question. And I, and I don't want to even put an answer out there because I don't want to think that we know the answer to that. I, I would work with your cardiologist to get together a, a treatment plan if you have a cardiac MRI that is found to have myocardial fibrosis, because I think it will depend on a lot of different things. Thank you. Based on your interactions with patients and caregivers, what kind of support do carrier moms need most? You know, I really like the direction of carrier mom emotional support and carrier moms engaging. But to me, the big problem is that carrier moms aren't taking care of themselves. You know, what I see in our clinics is you look at a mom, you say, are you a carrier? They say, yes. I say, have you had heart checked? Oh, I'm just too busy. You know, and there's no support for these women. I mean, you can only imagine that you're looking at your son in a wheelchair and you gave them that disease. And I think these women carry these gargantuous burdens. And so it's really a psychological bust for these young women that I think we sort of really need to address. So it's really, it's really tough times for these women. You know, we need to do a better job of, of supporting them from a mental health standpoint. And how do you envision we do that? So if there was a path forward with regards to mental health and support upon diagnosis, uh, what would that that perfect pathway look like to you? I would love to see a psychologist assigned to the family at the time of diagnosis to hold their hands and to walk them through the initial emotional aspects of the journey. I, I would love to see carrier moms receive guidance in how to deal with um, all of the complex emotions that they're experiencing. I think when we're in the clinic, just handing them a Kleenex box and saying, I'm sorry, just doesn't cut it. Are you aware of any trials or any ongoing research focused solely on carriers? Well, you know, I think that there are a number of investigators who are interested in carriers. I know that, you know, Mei Ling Ma remains very interested in, in investigating maternal carriers. There's a group at Penn now who is interested in starting a unique carrier clinic. There's an adult cardiologist at UT Southwestern who is, I think, outstanding with regards to evaluating the cardiomyopathy of carrier moms. And and I don't want to leave anybody out because there's a multitude of other great people in the field. Beth McNally in Chicago is somebody who I should have mentioned almost first. So there's a lot of really good adult cardiologists who are interested in carrier moms. But, you know, that's a very small number of people to treat a very large population. And so we need to increase just the number of cardiologists or maybe even just the awareness. When screening adolescent carriers, at what age do you begin to see the signatures of cardiomyopathy? I think that's the question I'd like to solve is that we don't screen adolescent carriers because a lot of the adolescents don't know that they're carriers because they can't be tested until they're age 18. So we don't really have that information available to us at this time. And nobody has really undertaken a detailed study to look at that question. Could you speak to the importance of clinical trials, especially when considering carrier moms who perhaps have lost a child? Clinical trials are really important, and and I would encourage families to allow us to continue in their lives after they've lost a child. I think the information that will be obtained about grandmother's journeys or mother's journeys as they, they go through the years, I think will be critical with regards to helping us understand this disease. I would love to know what the natural history is of 
the older carrier mom um, in their 70s and 80s? Do they have early myocardial infarctions? Do they die from cardiomyopathy? Is this a significant problem? What other health issues do they have? So I think the only way we're going to get this information is if families and moms allow us to do that. And in order to do that, they're going to have to stay with a very tough emotional burden. You know, after losing the child to stay in the arena and in the space, I think is very challenging, but I think it's critical if we want to change the disease for the next generation. How heavily does emotional stress contribute to cardiomyopathy? I really like that question. I think, you know, there's a a fair amount of work that's been done in the adult population, which I'm not completely familiar with, but I know that it has a pretty significant impact on your long-term cardiovascular health and well-being. And so I can only guess that it probably has a significant impact on the cardiovascular care of families with Duchenne, particularly carrier moms, as well as the boys. Um, We live in a crazy world at the moment, and we just are emerging from a pandemic, and the stress and anxiety levels are out of control. And trying to bring us back down or bring the volume down to a reasonable roar, I think, is really tough. And it seems to me that all of us need just more than the app on our phone (laughs) that says we should meditate every 10 seconds or something. So I I don't know how we're going to navigate this journey, but we need to navigate it together because I think it's more important than we even begin to appreciate. Absolutely. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you, guys. Uh, The opportunity to do this is is really a gift. You know, and the reason why I say that is because I think we got to get this information out there. This has been wonderful. And we can't thank you enough for all of your efforts within this community. And to the listener, thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode, I encourage you to listen to our recent take on Duchenne North America podcast episode, Spotlighting Women in Duchenne, where we first heard from Dr. Kripe and two other extraordinary women with ties to Duchenne. Make sure you join us for the next episode. You can subscribe to the podcast series at ptcbio.com or your favorite podcast channel.